Voice of the Musical. Just cause. Yeah, we've just said all the good stuff. I know. So, <laughs> you join us here at Voice of the Musical just after we've said all the good stuff. Sorry about that. Yeah, we just had a really interesting chat about musicals, and I'm spent, frankly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You look spent, and you, it, I think we kind of un- unlocked a few universal truths. Yeah, I but can't I can't remember them. Oh. Well, certainly they couldn't be articulated in any simple form. Well, not again, anyway. No. I mean, you know, we did it. It once. was incredible, though, wasn't it? It was quite. Remember enjoyable. that moment about three minutes ago where we just really landed on something? We did. We did, and I actually shed some weight. I felt you lost my weight. Cor- poor, poor, poor I body. shed myself. Yeah, yeah. We've fortunately, this is. I was going to do a video podcast, and and I was told about Tim's thing with the propensity so. for yeah. releasing baggage when I have a good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both both metaphysically and and, and uh, physically. So what, what what do we talk about we now? We could then? do some whistling. Oh, you're good at that. Terrible. Okay. What is it with with, uh, like uh, first world war guys who could really whistle? Oh yeah. Was it a thing? I think it was a. Um, it probably to do with with um vibrato and they could just whistle anything. Well, there are a lot of. Well, I tell you what it was. There are a lot of um, a lot of actors who signed up and they weren't allowed to whistle in the theatre because it's very bad luck. All right. So when they got into the army, there was like a kind of outpouring of whistling. Right. Because it was, yeah. Same reason after the war there was an outpouring of intercourse. It's all <laughs> yes. about what is blocked up. It's, it's, it's like it, a it dam is, being released. It is, it is very all much All these so. men wandering around with repressed whistles. Yeah, so the war was very, very good for, for the development of whistling. Of the whistle. And peacetime was very good for the development of children. That's it. That's the one. Hey, what, do you know the origin? You know, of course, why whistling in the theatre is bad luck. I think, so. yeah, it's the, f- it's the fly tower. Yeah, in the, in the old days they the flies would have code, that, so the guys dropping bars in and out and carrot and putting weights into cradles would have a code of whistling. So if some dickhead actors wandering around yeah. whistling his heart out, and someone might interpret it as bringing the lighting bar and smack yes. him in the head. Yeah. There's usually origins for those myths, but uh, I don't know what the Macbeth one was. Probably just a correlation of uh, a few people said Macbeth and a few things happened, and everyone went, yeah. "Must be a rule." Yes. Causal fallacy in play. Nostradamus probably had a bit to say yeah, about it. Yeah. Well, he would have done. I wrote a song about Nostradamus. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, in college. Uh-huh. It was really Nostradamus college. in college. Did he? Which is what we're talking about. He was. <laughs> no, he was. <laughs> no. He's made a terrible mistake, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Tim's just misinterpreted uh, uh, my, my grammar, my semantic. Ah, oh, it's really fallen apart. I wrote a song <laughs> about how awful it would be to know the future. Yes. Okay. Clever no. guy, though, Nostradamus. But do you think what was it, what, do you, what do you think his trick was? Why do you think he kind of got it? Well, he managed to still be talked about. Um, well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I I know what you have to do to write something that people can impose their own thoughts on, just like the Bible code and stuff. It's, if you take any text that ranges broad enough, you can uh, pick out infinite infinite meanings uh, if, if you're and, and you're reverse engineering it of course so if your belief system is that they're uh, like David Icke that we're run by lizard people you could go to Nostradamus and find a whole lot of stuff that predicts lizard people or you could go to the Bible and apply some uh, esoteric code and find hints of lizards I and mean, it's just the nature of large numbers lots of letters lots of text but um, 
why does any one uh, sort of historical figure float to the top? Why Jesus? Why not his contemporary messianic Jewish preacher, Sven? Probably not Sven, but, you know, mm. it's weird without Paul of Tarsus having an epileptic fit on the road to Damascus and without Constantine's mum, Jesus wouldn't be famous either. So there's probably a whole lot of butterfly wing flaps that have made Nostradamus Nostradamus. Well, um... What else? We've talked about well, everything. Done it again. Not, not quite as profoundly as before I turn on the news. So I should excuse my nasal passages. Do I sound really blocked up? Because yeah, my no, ear's no. really blocked, so in my head I'm a buzzing mess. Mm. No, so it's probably not as bad out here okay. as it is in there. Yeah. <laughs> Almost <laughs> as a rule, it's not as bad out there <laughs> as it is in here. Um, so, I'd, um, here we are. We are in... Tim Minchin's studio with um, a lovely Yamaha grand piano and some very sexy synths and a bit of air conditioning, but uh, I can put on the filter to edit that out. You know, you can do some. some Unfortunately, my voice sits at exactly the same frequency as the air conditioning in this room. Okay. So if you cut out the air conditioning, I'll be gone too. Okay. So this, <laughs> when it, this reaches you, this just might just be me talking um, and claiming to have met Tim Minchin. Yeah. And but, in uh, some parallel cut-out universe, me and the air conditioner will be singing away together. There's a there's a song in there, isn't there? Yeah. What happens to all those frequencies that you delete? Yeah. It goes so behind the couch. Nothing is ever gone. Really? I know. The second law of thermodynamics demands that. Yeah. Uh, that's bullshit. Tim mentioned the, in the air conditioner. Somewhere in, in a parallel in, universe. In the parallel universe, are gigging. <laughs> um, to, to some success. With no sweat. And I'm here, well, I guess um, we met a couple of weeks ago. Um, as losers. As losers, as co-losers um, at a British Composers Awards, but they had very nice canapes, um, and we were there with a lot of posh composers, um, some of whom also didn't win, so, you know. So we're in good company. We're in good company. Like all losers, we're in good company. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I had just seen Matilda, which of course had just pressed at uh, the Cambridge Theatre. Um, and so in a week when I've also interviewed Sandy Wilson, um, who composed The Boyfriend back in the early 50s, you're kind of like the new kid on the block, except you've also been around the block, um, but we can talk about that as well. Cause you've yeah, different block there. Different block. Yeah. Um, selling my ass on a different <laughs> so for the r- listeners who might uh, only know you through Matilda or only know you through your comedy could you just give a little br- bit of a brief biog because actually you weren't you, you know we know you as a big Aussie comedian you're actually born in Northampton which born in Northampton you want my brief biog to go back to 1975 <laughs> well I want it to be brief but I, I don't think we can leave Northampton out of the no, so I was born in Northampton but to Australian parents my dad was over here working at Northampton General Hospital as a resident registrar, whatever it is, to get his fellowship so he could cut people open. Um, So I was home in Perth by the time I was one, so I didn't really identify myself in any way as British until I needed the passport. Um, And, uh, you know, I grew up playing sport and going to the beach, fiddling around the piano for a while, did a couple of lessons. Um, then played in bands with my brother and stuff during high school. Um, kind of rediscovered the piano through my brother saying, come on, let's work out this song sort of thing, having, having quit after, 
halfway through grade three or whatever. So your brother is Dan? Dan, yep. Dan plays, uh, plays guitar, he's great actually, but that has it, doesn't do it anymore. Um, and uh, then did school plays and stuff and sort of tended to drift towards providing incidental music. Um, and then in my first year out of school I wrote songs this woman, Jenny Davis, um, asked me if I would... She had seen me playing incidental music for a play, a youth theatre play, and asked me if I'd write some songs for a youth theatre version of Love's Labour's Lost um, that had previously been musicalised, but she didn't like the music, and they had used... It was really great, actually. Um, Shakespeare's sonnets and contemporary sonnets, John Donne and um, uh, other other poetry from mm. from that era from Elizabeth yeah. yeah that sort of stuff um, all of which was amazing looking at that stuff because they all stole from each other so much but um so I wrote these songs and it was just though that that thing the reason people like us are in theatre you know that two months of a whole lot of kids some of whom are at school some of whom are at uni just turning up to rehearsal every night and falling in love with each other and crying and having dramas and eventually putting on a play that you do eight times or four times <laughs> and in a 200 seat community hall and by the end there's people hanging off the rafters and everyone cries and you say we'll never forget each other let's catch up and that's it you know you never see them again so I did that and the next year I wrote, rewrote songs for Breck's Mother Courage and the year after that I did I wrote music for a whole lot of uni, uni stuff and the whole while thinking I don't know what I'm doing here I'm gonna hit a wall um, because I can't read music and I can't write music and I'm not educated about what other people have done, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit a wall. This is all lovely in in youth amateur theatre in Perth, West Australia, but this isn't gonna work out. So I'd, I'd had this year where I'd written three or four scores, some of them just sort of incidental, a lot of Shakespeare because a lot of Shakespeare gets done at U UWA where I was at uni, um, and I was actually working, the only time in my life I've actually worked with dots, I was actually working with a scoring, early scoring software. Can you think what that would have been, 1994, 93? Finale was... It yeah, was much, much simpler than that. Wow. Anyway, it was just putting dots on and you could yeah. make your MIDI, your very basic MIDI, 120 instruments, whatever it is, play the, the dots. And I was just dragging dots around and going, that might sound alright, and pressing play. And I've never worked with dots before or since, but um, I wrote some right stuff using mm. dots because it's not that complicated. It just takes a long time if you're not a writer or a reader. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I need to give up and do something proper or I need to try and um, learn to read and get better. So I'd heard about this new course at the Academy of Performing Arts, which was called at that stage a certificate of commercial music and I thought if I can get into anything I might be able to get into a certificate of commercial music you know and so I went and did this uh, I went and did some lessons to try and get in which involved learning some 13 shapes in my left hand so I could comp and solo over a 12 bar blues there were kind of things that you had to do to get in and I did sort of 10 lessons or something with this guy called Frank it's, it's weird um, nice guy and I got in and I spent two years uh, kind of loathing myself because I was in the same building as Jazz's 
and and I just couldn't believe it, you know. <laughs> it just all felt so completely out of my reach um, because I'm not disciplined enough. I did uh, for the first year. I think I had a 45-minute piano lesson a week, and then I had a half-hour piano lesson every two weeks or something, and and uh, so I found it really hard. I didn't like my piano teacher because he didn't care about the things that I cared about mm -hmm. which is right of him of course because I wanted to go but I'm a writer I want to create and he's like shut up and learn your two five ones like and it was right but I I, I didn't respond I, I did I, I worked pretty hard but I didn't I didn't respond fantastically to that but what it uh, and I, I didn't so I came out short and long that I came out of that course with a very low self-esteem and I still couldn't read or write music because I mean, once you can play and you can write, going back to dots is almost impossible. It would take an incredible act of will mm. to, to go back and start again. So I didn't. But what I learned in that two years, actually, I slowly taught myself over the next five years as I got ready, as I reached the points where I wanted to understand that. And still I think, God, that thing they were telling me then, that's this, and I want to know more about that now. Um, and then I played in a million bands and musical directed for cabaret artists uh, and stuff in Perth, eventually left Perth and went to Melbourne and kind of collapsed in a heap. Uh, went to Melbourne with too low, too low a status. To, I thought when you come from Perth, any, anywhere bigger than Perth feels like this massive giant uh, and I went, oh, if I go to Melbourne, I probably won't be able to get any gigs. And so I went there, and instead of, well, I don't know. I don't know what else I could have done, but I looked online for gigs, and I got in a cover band, playing keyboards in fake English pubs. And I did that for two and a half years, um, just playing keyboards in top 40 band in fake English pubs. Um, but actually... While I was doing that, I was still trying to figure stuff out. Couldn't get an agent because I'm an actor as well. I was acting a lot in Perth. Uh, did a lot of got a, got a band together for original stuff and did a lot of tryout gigs. And they'd say, "Come, come and play on the weekend. You guys are great. Come and play on Saturday night. You can be our second headliner." And I'd be like, "Can't. I'm in a cover band, and if I can't quit the cover band because that's how I'm paying my rent." And so I was in this trap that yeah. so many of us get into, where the where the bill payer stands in the way. And out of all that, I um, was playing with a guy called Eddie Perfect who writes satirical songs and he and I kind of pushed each other to write dark and musically serious satirical songs. And uh, I was playing piano for him whilst sort of feeling jealous of him. <laughs> and, uh, and then I put my own sort of cabaret show together and for two years I played, I called it cabaret until I realised people were laughing most of the way through and so I put it in a comedy festival and then I came to Edinburgh and then things started going well and I started touring and then three years after that the RSC rang me up and said, you're interested in musicals? And I said, yeah, that's who I am. And so that was that. Brief. Yeah. Brief but, but involved. I mean, you've done a, a, a lot. You won the Perrier and was it best you come on the Perrier? Um, the, B, the B Perrier. Yeah. yeah. And when I, um, when I heard Matilda, I, only knew you as a comedy songwriter, so, so I thought, you know, to myself, well, he's not going to be a theatre composer. And, and, and when I listened to the songs, and I 
damn, he is a theatre composer. What's, where's this come from? And then I realised, actually, you've been doing it a long time. And doing it. I mean, <laughs> a lot of it's Chris Nightingale, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of it's the orchestrator. But, uh, but I, I'm, I'm a theatre guy. You know, I'm You're passionate a guy, about yes. theatre, and I, I think Absolutely. I have some sort of my version of an understanding of how it tells stories. And if anything, the reason I'm a failed pop act is because my songs are too theatrical. That's a really interesting thing, isn't it? The whole pop versus theatre. Yeah, um, they don't really cross over very well. They don't. Um, as, what, what do you think that is? As you can tell by the pop acts who try to write musical theatre, and it goes both ways. Mm. And there are exceptions. Elton John. Even though I think you, you, you wouldn't think that Elton John does a great job at theatre writing, I don't suppose, but, um, uh, but Elton works with other people. And in a sense, the, sh the shows which are constructed with the Elton John songs give space to songs which are great songs because he's a great songwriter. Yes, you know? that's right. Uh, and you know, he chooses great stories yeah. for you know, the approach. Of it's a really stories. interesting balance because you want a pop song in a musical theatre show these days. Not, not, not always, not if you're sometime you don't, mm. and that's fine. But, but there's something very valid and fine about making sure there's a there's pop in, yeah. in a musical theatre show, but it shouldn't stand out as pop. Um, well, you can understand producers going, we've got a show, we've got to, you know, we're going to appeal to their, to their kids, we want to you know, yeah. have a broad appeal, not just the kids, but the, what people are listening to. Yeah, well, I, and it's not pop as in, you know, if you, if you go, right, what's contemporarily popular right now on the radio, and try and stick one of them in yeah, your musical theatre show, yeah. you look like a dick. Because pop is fleeting, yeah. and musicals shouldn't be. Mm. Musicals want to run, and that's why Elton John can get away with it because he can write a cracking song that doesn't really sit too much in time. Mm. That's part of piano-based songwriting versus sort of producer-based or yeah. or guitar-based songwriting. I think is it uh, the kind of breadth and harmonic movement encouraged by writing at a piano probably feels more timeless. Anyway, that's a unbackable claim. But um, I see. Well, it's an interesting one, yeah. isn't it? Because actually, when I uh, when I listen to a new score and I go, I'm not really feeling satisfied. It's very often that there's a lack of harmonic interest. You yeah. Know? Actually, you go, well, there's something. It's not moving. I mean, yeah. um, <coughs> uh, Dave Stewart did Ghost, and and I think it's fantastic and great and everything. But um, and there's actually some cracking lines in it but I think if anything Dave Stewart's brilliant songwriting for Eurythmics and stuff and, and since is about a sort of sonic atmosphere and it's about broad sounds and and concepts and stuff and it doesn't necessarily help with the storytelling style of what you uh, what you want if you want to uh, to do this kind of hardest of theatrical things which is to come out of dialogue go into a song not feel like you've been ruptured not feel like you've been taken out of the story and are being plonked back in feel like you're being drawn into the song given something new and elucidating and, and emotionally stirring and then gently laid back into the dialogue this almost impossible task is perhaps served I'm just talking totally this is not theories I sit around at home and, and formulate but it's perhaps served by by the sort of writing that comes when you've got a full keyboard laid out in front of you and you understand that 
if you move semitonically up through that, then that gives you the opportunity to make that the third of the dominant seven, which mm. is this diminished thing, and suddenly you're in the minor and off you go, whatever, you know. Mm. And that's not the sort of stuff guitarists and producerial songwriters who work uh, off the bass line or off a rhythm or whatever necessarily are, is their stock in trade. Yeah. But that same habit of mine of going, da, 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 and then we're into a, you know, it's relative minor, and then we're, that's a major, and now we're into that really. And that habit is why I don't go on the radio, because it's a bit <laughs> uncool. And yet in the theatre, it makes people cry. Yes. With boredom. <laughs> you know, I like to think I can write across all genres, but there's a reason I've ended up in comedy and theatre. It's because my songs sort of serve a, a narrative purpose. We talked about, talked about Bill Bailey and his comedy approach earlier in the bit that the into that I didn't record um, <laughs> with all the, the other good stuff and um, the naked bit yeah yeah we were naked, naked for that bit. yeah but it, it 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 flows everything flows more yeah when you're totally naked. Yeah. there's Tom Lehrer big themes in what are ostensibly silly songs and you're kind of in that in that tradition is that something that you you wanted to do rather than writing you know fri frivolous stuff none of it's very conscious I, I certainly, I'm not a Lyra um, disciple. I didn't really know his stuff. Ma maybe I'm influenced by friends who knew his stuff. You know, mm -hmm. something about sitting around at parties when I'm 18 with a guitar going round playing, you know, one, six, four, five, round and round, and everyone just making up lyrics. Um, that, that, you know, maybe they were Lyra fans or whatever, and I got it through them. But I also always loved the lyrically clever stuff of the bands I listened to which were all 60s and 70s bands mm -hmm. so you know Ray Davies and the Kinks wrote half satire really yeah. if you think about you know dedicated yeah, follower yeah. of fashion and um, eight man and I want to be like David Watson you know whatever yeah. like he's made these gags and I, I I don't know I can't trace it and then through uni there was lots of review stuff like you did at Cambridge Cambridge yeah, yeah. and um and that sort of pushed it and, and I started doing beat poems with my friend Toby Schmitz and we'd sort of half mock T.S. Eliot and it was actually <laughs> driven by Mike Myers and so I married an axe murderer, I remember that? What was it? Harriet called into the night like a fireman going to a window where there is no fire, that stuff. Um, and, and there's uh, also your, your dad was a doctor and there's this kind of science geeky Yeah, I guess there's geeky well. stuff but that didn't really come out of my, because when I was writing for for my band, you know, for Timmy the Dog and later Rosencrantz and all these failed bands, um, which didn't really fail, they just existed and we did some gigs and something else came up, you know. You know, on my one album I've ever made in a lounge room of my house in Subiaco, I have really normal, lovely sort of songs like Nothing Changes and Moment of Bliss and and then I've got who's the fella this week bitch and my heart belongs to an 18 year old lesbian and God and all these songs right so even when I was writing pop I was just I, it wasn't a decision I was just writing songs that were funny because I found taking it's basically the avoidance of cliche drove me to satire because I couldn't bear rhyming love with dove you know mm. and there are one way to avoid cliché is to be a brilliant songwriter and write like Paul Simon or Bob Dylan and, and write amazing poetry. Maybe that was beyond me <laughs> because what I did to avoid cliché is mock the cliché and mock the 
cliche of my own emotions as a young in my early 20s my, my one big breakup in my life I wrote eight songs and a couple of them were heartfelt and teary but most of them were sort of angry or self-loathing in a very self-mocking way because I found the fact even at that age I knew what I was going through although it felt like the most profound thing in the world was a was a hackneyed replay of a replay of every fucking idiot teenager's emotions throughout history and I refused to treat them with the weight that I felt <laughs> you know so I so it's just a compulsion and as I said I when I finally in 2003 booked a space for the Melbourne Fringe Festival and gave it a show name which is not uncommon because I always had this theatrical way of doing things I even when I did my album, rather than geek for a year, I just put on a launch, bang, you know, mm. 500 people, sell some t-shirts. I just, I liked events. So I did this show in 2003 called Naval Cerebral Melodies with Umbilical Chords. And it was just me going, right, the record companies and, and the people who come and watch my gigs seem to get confused by the fact that half my songs are taking the piss mm. and are stylistically so diverse. If I just put all my silly songs and my stylistically quirky songs into one show, then I can get on with my band. I'll separate them, right? I'll yeah. do cabaret and pop rock. And, and, and I'll crack on like that. And I'll do my cabaret shows and I'll then get a record deal and all that. And uh, I got up in October of 2003 and did this show, Naval, which had a poem called Angry Feet, which ended up on one of my DVDs. And... Inflatable You and Dark Side and a lot of the songs I still play and people just laughed and laughed and I didn't realise it wasn't really intentional I thought it was just quirky but I love being on stage always have nearly always have and, uh, and it just felt really right but it still took two years before I realised it was comedy mm. and the other one just went Okay, well that's... Yeah, fine. Well, the other one's sitting there now. Mm. Now the other one rears its head again and I'm thinking, well, I've got Matilda up and I've established myself as a comedian. I've done this huge orchestra show. Maybe now I should make a studio album and let what I've learned over the last five years be brought to bear on it. Not try and write like anything. Just what would Elvis Costello do? You know, just write a record yeah. without comedy as, as a driving force. So I want to do that, but I don't know, it seems a bit foolish as well. I, I should crack on and write another musical while the fire's hot, yeah. or whatever the cliche is, or, you know, why stop doing comedy? I'm still learning how to do it, you know. But, but if I don't put out a record now, I'm 36, you know, it's going to start getting sad. I've never done a studio album, I've been a songwriter for 20 years. Mm. When you look back over the last 20 years, do you make any, any sort of sense of it? Was there a kind of driving thing? What I am not is a fatalist. Nor, nor did I have dreams in the X-factor sense. Coming from a you know, surgeon, grandson of a surgeon, son of a surgeon, that... that that is a long, long way from here, you know. I, there's no, absolutely no sob story. I've had an amazing, amazing opportunities and amazing support. But I just, when kids go, one day I'm going to, I just go, what gives you the, 
what, what makes you think that's even possible? I mean, it is, and good on you, but I, I, ju I thought if I could play in a piano bar, if I could get good enough to play in the corner of a piano bar and earn money playing the piano, that was as far as I went until I was there. Yeah. And then I went, oh, hold on. Maybe I could play in a band or tour. And, and that's as far as I went. You know, I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I'm, like, I'm not claiming this humble modesty or anything. I, I, I'm, I'm ambitious in that I really like working hard and, and I'm not a, I'm not a self-loathing person. I'm not a shuffling, self-loathing person. But I honestly, honestly, it would not have crossed my mind in a million years that I could do this. Which is a lovely way to do it, really. Because I just didn't have access to it. There was no line. I couldn't draw a line from playing hockey in Perth to Lloyd Webber. If you grow up in London and you go, I went to the school where... Well, where Lloyd Webber went to school, know. and then I went, you know, and this, and then my parents took me to Broadway, and this is where Sondheim's first show went on, and suddenly you're in the world and you're sure. drawing these lines, yeah. and there's the ladder, hated Cambridge Footlights, and there it is, and, and that, but I just, I just, <laughs> yeah, so, um, so I, I don't believe in fate, and I didn't achieve my dreams, uh, and I think any number of butterfly wing flaps going a different way could have sent me in a different direction. And that might be an English teacher mm. or a headmaster. I, I, oh, as a flip side to all this, um, whatever it is, um, modesty <laughs> or whatever, fake humbleness, I, I think whatever I did, I would be quite good at. I really like working hard. I'm able to articulate my ideas. I like reading and learning. I'm, I'm comfortable around people. I, you know, so I'm f I would have been fine. Yeah, yeah. But then you ask Jenny Davis, who asked me to do Love's Labour's Lost in 1993, and she'll tell you I was always going to do this. You know, like <laughs> I flew her over to the opening night of Matilda. Uh -huh. um, you know, so other people are like, well, of course you were going to do this. You're always cheeky at school and played the piano <laughs> instead of did your homework. And I'm like, well, yeah, I just don't, I just don't think that's true. Mm. There's no reason. It's just fucking lucky. It, it's really just lucky. However, um, I worked my guts out of everything I've ever done. You know, like if someone said, here's $500, write 10 songs for an amateur version of Love's Labour's Lost. I just went, you know, like, this is the most important thing yeah. that I've ever done. Yes. You know? And I think all in, you know, that, that's my attribute, is that I go all in. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I also procrastinate and you know, fuck around and hate myself and eat too much and I'm an idiot and all that. <laughs> but, but I think I probably treat things, uh, I value the, the, the chances. Sorry, is, am I answering any questions? Am I sounding like a fuckhead? Yeah, but yeah, a good yeah, way. Yeah, good. I mean, I, I've just, I've done so many different things that, and I kept doing them until something stuck and then I followed that and then theatre, my old arch came back and slapped me, you know, and and I think I'm very lucky and all that sort of thing. But uh, I think um, if if a young person ever asks me, you know, how do you do it? I say, well, just work on what's in front of you. And don't set long-term goals. I mean, I, I hate that stuff. You set mid-term or short-term <laughs> goals, I guess. But um, but but people think it's a single 
path and, and what I feel very strongly is that I don't I never felt I had the right to be an artist I guess that comes back to my upbringing and stuff and all my friends went off and auditioned for acting school and I acted but I just didn't think I I don't know I thought they must be special or something I just didn't think I was one of those people and uh, and at times that served me very poorly the fact that I didn't think I had the right to be an artist which is why I got stuck in a cover band for so long because I thought oh well if I'm in a cover band then that must be what I'm worth mm. and it's there's truth in that mm. if you're in a cover band you should bloody enjoy it and feel lucky that you're playing music for a living and entertaining people and that this lead singer and his brother on the bass have chosen to employ you because you could be not doing that. Um, but, and, and, but, but maybe there were there was times when I moved to Melbourne where I, where I let myself disregard my skills too much. But as a general rule, I, I think you've got to remember that no one has a right to be an artist. You don't get to be an artist because you think you should be. You know what I mean? There's no single path to success, nor, nor should there be. The reason you can create something for a living is because you stumble at a particular time on a particular style of painting, singing, dancing, dressing, composing, designing sets that intercepts for a little while with the zeitgeist or with a small subsection of society who want to hear your beat poetry over someone blowing glass, or with a huge subsection of society who wants to hear about your, your lady lovers, or with you know, a, a group of people who are about to die but they're the last people who want to listen to Irish chamber music, or whatever it is. You're, you're lucky if you find an audience. And if you want to be lucky, you have to keep exploring and looking and finding what your skills are and, and trying different things until you find an audience and if you're enjoying what you're doing, keep doing that sort of thing. I just don't, I just don't think, you know, I still don't think I have a right to be an artist. If my next musical people don't like and I, I sort of lose my mojo about comedy and my studio album doesn't work out, I don't expect any favours, you know. I'll go be a teacher. Do you, you expect to be able to be an artist? You had a you had such success so young. Yeah, I mean, I'd f I'd f I'd find it very hard if somebody said you weren't allowed to. But that's the other thing, isn't it? Yeah. Of course, you'll be an artist for the rest of your life, mm. and whoever wants to listen will listen. Yeah, yeah. So some somehow you keep you keep doing it because it's what it's what you do. You, it's what you do. It's what it's what it, it's what gives you a a bigger context for for life, other than you know. You know the, the core things of you know, family and um, you know, eating and breathing. Yeah. But and over time, of course, it comes to define you, and it's, it's like your face. Mm. You, know? you just can't. Eventually, you find you try to take the suit off and it's grown into yeah. your skin. You know? What's happened for me recently is just a, a sort of an acceptance of who I am in terms of I'm a bit of a performer and I'm a bit of a lyricist and a composer, a bit of a magician. You know, I'm I'm a bunch of things, and they're all okay to be. And I don't have to say, well, if I so I, important, yeah, not not specialising. Everyone's like, you've got to decide. No, you don't. Okay. I think that's when I things started going right for me. Is when when I went, ah, oh, 
I kept saying, oh, I'm going to have to give up and get a proper job. I want my partner to be able to have kids and not have to go straight back to her terribly difficult, poorly paid job, and I'm going to have to get a real job. And eventually, at some point in my late 20s, I went, shut up. You know, this is, this is what you're doing. So you're going to be a poor, happy musician or a rich, happy musician, but the thing that's not going to change is you're going to be a happy musician because I'm generally a happy person and I'm generally a musician. And it's a lovely place to get to because you sort of give up. <laughs> and, then, and then you can get on with just sniffing around and seeing what sort of musician or magician or yeah. nutrition you want to be. <laughs> what, when you got the call from the ROC, did you go, oh, okay, that sounds like a, that sounds quite exciting. How did it work? Uh, uh, I, I got a call, just an email from my agent saying the ROC want to talk to you about a musical project. And I'd just been in the States where, um, as I'm sure you know, most meetings are sort of general meetings. It's people wanting to be able to say, yeah, I, I met him, you know, and uh, ticking the box. I thought it was a general. I thought it was, it was very, it was the fucking RSC. You know. Are we swearing on this podcast? We no. are, we are. It's we the are. goddamn motherfucking <laughs> RSC. You know, like I, uh, and interestingly, the only time I've felt the need to use swear languages when talking about the Royal Shakespeare Company. You see, he says that, but he hasn't realised how much swearing he's done already. Do I do a bit of swearing? Do a bit of swearing. No, it's okay. Yeah, um, yeah I, I thought it was just a sort of, we've got our eye on you, you know, would you like to talk to us? Because I know they develop work and commission stuff. And so I went in and the meeting was, was with Matthew Warchus, who I didn't know of. Um, in fact, I failed to Google him for about six months <laughs> into the project. And then I went, oh, Christ, <laughs> I'm working with that guy. <laughs> He's won Tony's. Um, uh, and Matthew's very quiet, sort of unassuming guy. And he said, have you heard of Matilda? And I said, yes. And he said, we have the rights to write a musical. And I just talked for half an hour, as you can tell, I like to do. And because um, I... I thought, because I, um, I had already thought to write Matilda into a musical in Perth. I wanted to do it for a children's theatre company 10 years earlier and uh, had actually written to the Dahls and anyway, gone away. But uh, I was like, bullshit, you, you serious? Damn right I've heard of it. And then I went away and sent Matthew demos of other musicals I'd written and, you know, weird songs for co-ops in Sydney. Um, community theatre projects, and uh, but some of which I'm, I was and still am quite proud of. Um, but I don't think by then Matthew needed that. I think he'd come to see my show and had decided he wanted me to do it. Uh, and then they offered it to me, and I briefly considered saying no because I suddenly went, I'm just getting excited by the fact that it's an RSC, but it's probably a project that'll go on for two years and it'll be put on in Stratford and then it will disappear and I'm, I, I was touring ready for this and things were just starting to properly kick off for me and I was doing and I thought is this the right thing to be doing at this stage and uh, uh, I went to my agent and said is this the right thing to be doing and she said don't be an idiot and um, so I did it really and I'm very 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 glad because it's so by far the most amazing <laughs> sort of thing I've got to do. And what was the process? Is it, um, you've got RSC, you've got a workshop week, to, uh, was that the first thing? 
Yeah, I, I just, we um, sort of had a series of meetings with the script. I don't really know how this works. It'd be interesting <laughs> to see how it works for other people, but um, Dennis had already written an adaptation. So that's the first thing I got given. I reread the book and then read his adaptation and never looked at the book again because his adaptation did a whole lot of stuff and I needed to respond to that. And then we went in with Chris Nightingale and Matthew Watchers and Dennis Kelly and me and Jeannie O'Hare, who's the commissioning dramaturge at, at uh, the Iris. And um, we just sat there and kind of, Dennis had places that was song question mark and he'd written some lyrics and I told him I didn't want to see them. So he took <laughs> all them out um, because that's, you know, obviously yeah. very confusing. So he just had song question mark in various places and we just negotiated those. What? And talked and talked and talked. What would well, these? Did songs that come down to the title? Did he? Did he have titles that no, you didn't want to No, not really. He, he sometimes said song about something, but I asked him to keep it very broad. So we we had a big chat about what those songs would be about. And even at that early stage, I think we shifted some stuff. And then, being a complete sort of nerd and a little bit sciencey brained, I went away and did a flow chart for Act nice. One and a flow chart for Act Two. That just had boxes, I don't know, as I say, I don't know if anyone else does this, but it had boxes that represented a bit of text and a box for a song, text, song, text, song, and it flowed, and, and where it said song, I had a subject, either a subject heading or a hook line that I was like, maybe, you know, a song called whenever, whatever, and then each box had a colour, the dialogue boxes were black, and each song box had a colour, which represented a tone to me, so ballads were pink or whatever, and um, uh, chorus numbers were yellow, so we could see that we were, had the right balance yeah. before I started writing, because what's the point in writing if you don't know the sort of what job you're doing? Yeah. Although I'm very passionate about responding to the emotional moment in the play, there are often many, many choices you can make, so um, doesn't you know, so you need to let the form govern your work, don't you? Yeah. So I was like, yeah. so I did this really nerdy thing, and everyone laughed at me, and I went, "Shut up! Just <laughs> tell me if this is right." And we, you know, we shifted our thing around, and, and Matthew said, "You know, we also have not enough chorus numbers. We need, you know, how are we going to end the first act and all that?" And that was before I started writing. It's huh? great because it's really, you know, schematically, it's very easy for them people to go, "Oh, okay, this is the macro, you know, this is the macro form." Yeah, that's it's good for other people to be able to see. Um, obviously for us, once we get into it, it's even more subtle. The Sudoku of, of writing a musical or a song itself is every time you put in a factor, so you go, right, this is a chorus number and we need it to dance because we want a bit of dancing. And then you have to go, well, thematically, you know, could it be... I, I sort of do... Bit of genre work, like is it going to rock? Is it going to have something a bit Latin? You know, my yeah, yeah. my work's a little bit bit smorgasbordy. You know, mm -hmm. I'm I, I'm not writing a sort of I'm not I'm not Wagner. I'm not going. These are my four yeah. motifs, and yeah. I mean, there's loads and loads of motifs throughout Matilda. But I I was aware that it was uh, had to be fun and bright and brassy, and that the characters were such uh, caricatures that that was very very obvious to me all along that Mrs. Wormwood who loved who, who was who had a dance instructor slash lover 
and and stuff should do a Latin number, and everyone's Latin, yeah. like, "Why is it Latin?" And I'm like, "It's Latin. Shut <laughs> up. It's like um, Ricky Martin Latin, pop Latin, you know, and yeah. and and all that." So so all those things come into it too, because you go, "All right, well, you, you, you can't mash rock against rocket anyway." Yeah. So it's, it really is uh, a Sudoku. And then I had six weeks before my son was going to be born um, from when my Australian tour ended. And so I set myself the challenge of trying to write a first draft mm-hmm. in six weeks. And that's what I did. So I wrote 13 songs, did demos. Um, first song I wrote was when I grew up. Well, first song I wrote was just, the first thing I wrote was just the kind of da-da-da-da-da-da, the kind of slightly Tim Burton-y sort of world, the Dalian kind of circusy, y rumble of it. And then I wrote when I grew up. gothic. Yeah, slightly black and angular. And then I said when I grew up to Matthew and everyone, and they went, because oh, it's very pop. It's like a yeah. Beatles song, right? and they, I think they thought I was just going to write a series of self-contained pop songs. But I was like, don't worry, that's just the beginning of the second act. Which, by the way, was an argument for another year before, <laughs> they, before they put it in the beginning of the second act. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so oh man, I I loved it. I love it. I love mm-hmm. talking about it. It's, mm-hmm. it's probably. I assume it's not boring to you, but I assume it is boring to most people. But um, it's. Uh, I don't think so because it's. That's why they're because listening. yeah, it's because the process because you write you write a score and you have your instincts, uh, and then you take them along to a group of hopefully talented collaborators that yeah. go and say, well, this is all very well, but actually, wouldn't it be great if? And then you can have a yeah. discussion, stroke argument about it, and then other magical things happen, and then you. You have a workshop cast in, and they do magical things to it, and then mm. you have your you cast a show. And, and there was this other uh, dynamic, which is I didn't really know Dennis Kelly as right. a person. As soon as I met him, I liked him. We we make each other laugh. We've both got sort of dark and inappropriate senses of humour, and, and 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 my whole memory of the process of Matilda is <laughs> it's Nightingale's got a stupid sense of humour too, and Matthew Watchers is quite inscrutable. Um, uh, Dennis and me and Chris can make laugh all the time. So, it, 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 and, and we just spent our whole life trying to make Matthew laugh, right? trying to break the <laughs> break, break the ice man. And so, it's uh, I'm actually going to dinner with them all tonight for the first oh, time. No. I've, I've heard of the cat, but Dennis and I didn't really know each other. So I came back with these songs, and they came quite quickly, and they came quite developed. Some of them had, you know, 15 channels of. I, I just write demos mm. to answer the question, how do I write if I can't read dots? As I'm sure you know, I just play everything in, sing everything in, give it to a dot man. Um, So Dennis kind of, he did so well because I know now that he just went, oh, oh, my my play, my play, because he'd never written a musical, right? And and although we have a huge amount of common and sense of humour and stuff, it's still like someone just coming up to your painting and getting a brush and yeah. dipping it in the red and just going <laughs> splat you know and he just and, and something like Miracle which basically exists exactly as my demo still you know final form this it, is the opening number of the show yeah which is interlaced with this dialogue he went oh I think it's great but it do- doesn't work with my dialogue I'll have to change all the dialogue and I'm like no it does and he's like no it's just because he just course. I mean, he heard his dialogue, mm. and then I chopped his dialogue up and stuck it in the middle of this massive cacophony of, of sort of satire, and, you know. and it was narratively, it was a, 
Matilda starts with a, a nine, tw ten minute song. It's a prologue. It's before the story starts, which is contentious, you know. Mm. Um, maybe inadvisable, but um, uh, it took him a long time and and every single song, that thing we were talking about earlier, about finding ways in and out of song, of songs, was uh, was an argument, you know. Mm. But, but why, she can't sing that because she just said this, we'll change what she said then, Dennis. <laughs> Fuck you, man, I was here first, you know. But it was beautiful, yes. beautiful arguing, and, and the journey of Dennis and I, and we're both very independent workers. We don't sit around in a room together. We, we, we had these group meetings, but we didn't come and hang out together. Mm. I'd sort of go, what about this? And he, you know, and it was slow and separate. Mm. And it had to be, because neither of us can write with anyone else in the room. And uh, eventually it was, it was early in the year that it opened last year that we actually spent our, spent our first time together after the second workshop in Stratford and just sat down without Matthew or Chris or anyone and went, oh, and, and with a lot of Matthew's advisory in our ears, kind of solved a couple of things over dinner in Stratford in the snow one night. And, uh, and it wasn't until after that that I wrote Naughty and, and My House, which kind of solved the whole issue. Is that addressing the kind of emotional, the, more, the, kind of the, the smaller the portrait moments? The problem was we had two protagonists who were completely undemonstrative. Mm. You know, Matilda, Matilda in the book Miss, is Miss so Honey. contained, and Miss Honey is so undemonstrative. You can't have Miss Honey sing about her feelings. Her whole character is built on the fact that she represses mm. her feelings. Mm. And the problem with Matilda was she was too passive, because in the book she just sort of does these tricks, but then once she goes to school, she watches Hortensia and she watches all this stuff happen and sort of observes it and then at the end fixes everything, which is brilliant in the book, but it's no good when you're on stage. You need the protagonist to drive the story. So uh, putting Naughty early on in the show gave her the spirit. And, um, and of course, Naughty was built on When I Grow Up. It's the same song. Mm. It's exactly the same song. Just laid on top of the tempo up a bit. Sorry, different melody, obviously, but the same harmonic structure. And uh, that solved when I grew up, too, because when I grew up, I was sitting outside the piece too much. Yeah. So suddenly it brought everything together. Nice. Phew. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's... You got the red yeah. by the way? Yeah. Oh, no. Go on. Can I? You don't have to have it. I'd love you to You can keep it in plastic. Don't listen to it. No, no, no. Oh, oh, oh. oh, London Road. London Road. Fucking hell, man. Yeah. That's my mate Adam. I was at uni with him. Oh, were you? Yeah. Can you tell him, I think, he Amazing. Yes, it's a, it's a crazy thing. When I first heard him talking about it, I thought, well, that's that's all very nice, Adam. That's you know, doing speech patterns. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that's good for the National Theatre Studio. Yeah, that's right. And unfortunately, it probably is mm. mostly, but it succeeds beyond what you thought yeah. it would. I'm sure. Yes. But what what's interesting about that we talked about a bit on on the at the Composers Awards is that it reminds you because we all do that a bit we all allow the way, or good songwriters, I like to think, um, allow natural, you can tell when someone's not a good lyricist, when their phrasing goes against speech patterns, which mm. isn't to say we do what Adam did in London Road, but, but without even thinking about it, you acknowledge speech patterns, so you land on, yes. uh, yeah. you don't invert 
the emphasis of words to yeah. suit your thing. And often you, you hear music written with a lyricist with a separate composer, mm. and that's happened because the lyricist has given something to the composer and they've gone, well, it should sound like this, and they haven't respected the natural. Yeah. And then your ear just goes, yeah. Ah, ah. So we all do it, but Adam showed me. I, I had, although I'm incredibly impressed, I don't want to go and do a verbatim musical theatre show. I don't know if I could do it as well as Adam, I doubt it. But I do, it did make me think, oh, I can go a bit further with that. I can, yeah. I can let speech patterns govern my choices yes. a bit more, maybe, especially in the recitative, especially yes. in, in stuff that, aren't, yeah. that isn't landing as a pop song. The, um, the difficulties in writing it down, and I think sometimes, you know, because I've always been, you know, learnt how to score when I was yeah. first writing songs. And I was talking with, um, with Charles Hart about this, the fact that actually the, the, the codifying of Western music through written notation, yeah. actually it, it, it can straightjacket you as a, as a writer, because you, you're suddenly thinking in, you know, in binary subdivisions of a bar, yeah. instead of thinking, well, what can music be? What can this phrase be? Yeah. Um, do I have to fit it into these little boxes? You know? yeah. and I, and I mean, for Even me the too, physical, well, it's probably what you're talking about, the actual physical, visual, we're such visual animals yes. that, you know, and even when you're making decisions to write outside the box, mm. you are making decisions based on the box. Yeah. You've got to delete the box. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Fuck yeah. thinking outside the square. You just got to kill the square. And <laughs> you, you know, so someone's going to quote that somewhere. Yeah. I sound like a total tool. I am a total tool. Oh. Um, uh, so kill the square is kill the, the square. Um, yeah, go out and kill yeah. the square. I might edit that out just to, you know for legal reasons. Yeah, because yeah, <laughs> squares will revolt. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, they will, and, and then there'll be uh, evening muse square killed after listening <laughs> by, to by music. Yes, yeah. music the hate podcast. hate speech. Exactly. Square we'll be like Chucky speech. again. We'll be like. Uh, it'll be like. I want to call it Toy Story, but it wasn't called Toy Story. It was called uh, Chucky. The doll. The uh, doll. Friday night. No, Friday night like fever. <laughs> <laughs> I love that music. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It that was part one of the Voice of the Musical podcast interview with Tim Minchin. Join us for part two when Tim demonstrates from the piano musical examples from the multiple Olivier Award winning smash hit that is Matilda. <laughs>